1: Welcome to episode 98 of District of Conservation. This is your host, Gabriella Hoffman. I don't know if you guys are already aware of this, but CFACT, a free market environmental group that I've worked with closely for almost a year, has officially come on to sponsor the podcast. And if you're interested to learn more about them, you can check them out at www.cfact.org. Today's guest is Congressman Rob Whitman of Virginia's 1st Congressional District. Congressman Whitman is a very avid sportsman, he loves to fish, he hunts, he lives the sporting lifestyle and he likes to showcase that in his work in Congress as well. And he came on to talk about what's happening in Congress, to dish on his background, the importance of conservation. Republicans can be conservationists and why we are naturally conservationists if you incline yourself politically like that. And we just talked about different fish species, bull red drum that reside in the lower Chesapeake Bay that filters into the Atlantic and so much more. I think you're going to really enjoy our conversation with him, get to know him a little bit better and maybe want to go fishing with him. I think you'll be motivated to want to hang out with him. He seems really nice And very personable, very lacking in politicians these days. And we are very proud to have him in Virginia as a congressman representing us in Washington, D.C. I wish he was my congressman because my congressman does not like sporting stuff. Anyway, this is our interview with Congressman Rob Whitman. Let us know what you think. Congressman Whitman, it is such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for coming on my podcast and our simultaneous uh, video as well.
0: Gabriella, thank you. It's an honor to be with you.
1: Awesome. I want you to introduce yourself to my listeners and to also the viewers who will be chiming in from YouTube as well, because you're one of the probably unlikeliest of Republicans, although not really unlikely because a lot of people in our political movement do... Uh, partake in outdoor activities, but you're one of the more outspoken sportsmen, I would say, in the Republican caucus. So why don't you introduce yourself to my listeners and uh, talk about what led you to become a sportsman, your background?
0: Sure, Absolutely. Well, I uh, live in the little town of Montrose, Virginia, which is in the northern Neck, beautiful area, the great outdoors uh, near the shores of the Potomac River, Lots of great outdoor activities. If you, if you like uh, things from kayaking to hunting to fishing to hiking, this is a great place. You have West Point State Park just up the road, the Potomac River, the Rappahannock River, the Chesapeake Bay, uh, lots, lots of open space. So, you know, I, I grew up um, doing just the things that I think folks in small rural areas grow, grow up doing, an interest in hunting and fishing. My father was very much the outdoorsman. Uh, and taught me uh the 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 fun of hunting and fishing i remember some of the lessons i learned from him was uh were, were things like the respect for the outdoors and 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 engaging in outdoor activities with others especially family for for us it was a family activity so it was always my dad and myself uh, that were going out, um, and my mom and sister enjoyed the outdoor too. Uh, sometimes a little bit different ways. They weren't. They weren't uh, uh, big into the hunting side, but they enjoyed. My mom especially enjoyed uh, hiking. In fact, she was a big fan of the state parks. And in, in fact, as as we grew up, she made sure that we visited every state park in Virginia. So we would go there and and spend summer times in the cabins there, you know, though, and those are old rustic cabins. So it's, it's, it's not, not like you had a lot of conveniences of home and we would always have opportunities to hike and fish and, and bring back neat mementos of those places. In fact, one, one of the places I remember the most is Ferrystone state park, which is near Bassett, Virginia. And fairy Stone state park is named after the fairy stones that, that you, that you find. They're very, very unique stones that are formed, um, Uh, in the earth and they just happen to come to the earth's surface there. So I remember I still have my bag of those old fairy stones that we found there at Fairystone State Park. So it was pretty neat uh, to be able to go to those places. Westmoreland State Park, which is right here where I live. Uh, We spent summers in the cabin there. I'll never forget going along the shores of the Potomac River and finding shark's teeth. In fact, I have some some shark's teeth from Carcharodon carcharodon, which is the prehistoric giant white shark i have one that's the size of my hand so just just phenomenal you know opportunities here i remember growing up with my dad we had an old aluminum starcraft boat and we would go all kinds of places going fishing in fact i would argue we probably went uh out in conditions that <laughs> we probably uh, probably should have stayed at the dock but we were adamant about getting out there and and going fishing so so it's been great and and both of my children uh, enjoy, enjoy the outdoors. Growing up, uh, both of them went hunting and fishing with me. My daughter is a, a, a very good in the shooting sports. My son today is a commercial fisherman. He grew up fishing. In fact, when he was 11 years old, I took him on a on a long range fishing trip out of San Diego, California, where we went out for 10 days. And I never forget the the. Um, The person who was running the trip, uh, an Australian, his name was Dennis Braid, was giving me a hard time about why I was bringing an 11-year-old on a trip with all these adults who were going way out in the Pacific Ocean, and he was just chastising me. It was funny, though, at the end of the trip, of all of the 22 anglers on board, and all of these were, were very accomplished offshore anglers, all the anglers on board little Josh Whitman 11 years old caught the second most fish of anybody on board and and at the end Dennis Parade has this little ceremony where he recognizes people and he called Josh up there and said son I owe you an apology he said because you you were just just phenomenal we were out there in some pretty rough weather and never got seasick never complained in fact he wore me out wow. <laughs> on that trip so a lot, lot, lot of fun so we have, you know we have a lot of great family legacies and stories that we tell about our outdoor experience and I'm blessed to live in this little small town and travel home every evening so I get to go across the Potomac River river and travel through the areas that I've grown up uh you know uh, traipsing through the woods uh, and just just enjoying what uh, what mother nature has to offer
1: It sounds like a dream and yeah that corner of Virginia yeah. for me as a transplant I've I've done my best to learn the state actually appreciate it and mm-hmm. not just come here and, and you just like stay in northern Virginia where I live but you have to, mm-hmm. in order to, to develop a love of a state, especially if you're a nature lover and a conservationist and outdoors person, you really do have to see what the state has to offer. And I've grown to love seeing yeah. every corner. And it seems like your your slice of Virginia is really just heavenly and ideal for, for all these activities you, you mentioned.
0: It is. We're, we're blessed. We're blessed beyond compare to have great natural resources there. And, you know, I think anybody that comes and visits us, you know, is just... Um, is just mesmerized by the beauty here, uh, not just the natural resources, but the people and the histor- uh, the historical resources here. I don't think there's a better place anywhere across the country. Of course, I'm a little biased, but <laughs> I still feel.
1: <laughs> no, it's, it's a very beautiful state. I, I've loved living here for the last eight years. And I tell people all the time, like, if you come to Virginia, you may not want to leave.
0: <laughs> That's right.
1: That's what, I like, that's what I always tell them. Before we talk about uh, your policy background, I wanted to ask you more so about what some of your favorite species that you've targeted are from the fishing side and also from the hunting side too. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, listen, I enjoy all types of fishing, from fly fishing to freshwater fishing to saltwater fishing. If I if I would say that, um, if I, I wouldn't say I have a preference, but I probably spend more time saltwater fishing. Uh, I love fishing out on the ocean, Uh, In places like the Chesapeake Bay and the sounds in North Carolina, it's just it's just unbelievable. in fact, I was out yesterday, uh, actually out uh, between uh, between Sandbridge, Virginia, out out in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, not far offshore. We were only maybe as far as 10, 10 miles out, but we were between uh, Sandbridge, Virginia, and we went all the way down to Corolla, North Carolina, if you were to draw a line out from the coast. And just amazing, just amazing. Yesterday, saw a giant manta ray, and we caught a couple of cobia off following this manta ray. Uh, saw half a dozen big leatherback turtles, one you know, we were in a we were in a twenty twenty two foot boat, and one was half half the length of the boat. Just phenomenal critters, and we were able to get right up to it. And we had a pod of dolphin yesterday. I say a pod of dolphin, a big pod of dolphin, probably two hundred dolphin in this pod. And we were out there just just drifting around, looking for uh, to, to catch some bait. And these dolphin all came up to the boat and they were little, uh, juvenile dolphin with them and they were just, just having a ball. And, and it, you know, it's, it's those types of experiences. I, I tell folks, the good thing about it is fish don't live in ugly places. And, and the amount of life that we saw yesterday is just, just phenomenal. So, you know, listen, we didn't, we didn't catch anything, you know, really significant yesterday. In fact, we only had three fish that we kept everything else that we released, but it was the experience of yesterday that will stick in my mind more so than what we caught. So you know we're just blessed. So I, I would say I probably tend a little bit more towards the saltwater side of things, but uh, but I I rarely, if ever, turn down an opportunity to go fishing.
1: Yeah, how could you even? Because <laughs> Virginia yeah. actually has a lot of different species. So one of my personal targets is to get a bull red drum because I know in the lower oh, yeah. bay, we have yes. such a great fishery, almost one that rivals Venice, Louisiana's. And I keep seeing <laughs> pictures of people catching it. And I'm like, I need to get this at some point. So like, that's one of my personal uh, goals to get that. But people underestimate just the different type of fisheries we have here. And our trout fishing is outstanding too. People it underestimate our trout fishery and just fly fishing <laughs> too, especially among people who are young professionals like myself. It is such a big <laughs> thing here. I cannot believe just seeing that, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, we got to get you out there this time of year. The schools of red drum are right in the mouth of the bay, and then out in the ocean. And you know, last year we we got on a big school of red drum and a big school of black drum. Nice. And uh, we we followed this one school of red drum just by ourselves. It was just my friend of mine and I, and we were able to stay on this group of fish. They let us. They let us pester them for about an hour, and we we caught and released about thirty big bull red drum. Uh, the biggest one. I was right at fifty right at fifty eight inches. We believe probably a six, sixty pound fish. So just just phenomenal fisheries. So Gabriella, we have we have to get you out there. It is phenomenal to see a school of red drum literally with five or six hundred fish in the school and not a fish smaller than than you know forty five inches. So
1: I'll actually be in the area in a few weeks. So I'll I'll touch base back with you maybe and we can Please, please yeah.
0: do. Please yeah. do. I will I will, I will, I will have connect to you with to folks do. Yeah. that can that can help you fulfill that, that bucket sure. list wish.
1: <laughs> sure, and we can make a fun video doing it too if you're interested as well. That's
0: right. <laughs> we can do that.
1: So I was perusing through your background and I know that you've done a lot in conservation, and right before you got to Congress, you were actually quite involved in the environmental side of things here in virginia can you talk about that experience and how that's kind of influenced your work in congress as a result
0: absolutely well you know i spent a number of years in local government from the montross town council to the westmoreland county board of supervisors and then to the general assembly and was very active in assuring that we were doing everything possible uh, to preserve our natural resources when i was on the board of supervisors i uh, was able to secure some Uh, Some NIFWIF grants, which is the National Wildlife uh, Foundation grant process uh, to reestablish some oyster reefs uh, here in the county. Uh, And then also worked at making sure that we were engaging sportsmen and other citizens uh, to address occasionally where we had conflicts between hunters and landowners. I wanted to make sure that those things were resolved because it's incredibly important for both landowners and hunters to make sure that they can enjoy the natural resources there that we have throughout the Northern neck. And then in, in the general assembly, making sure that we were doing things necessary to, uh, to protect our natural resources. One was the, uh, the easement program that we had in Virginia, making sure that we preserve that to where if you wanted to set your land aside in a, in a permanent conservation easement, that you received a state tax credit. I worked uh, uh, very hard on that when there was an effort to, to, um, to allow that system or that that program to expire, and then two, just simple things like with our Department of Game and Inland Fisheries. You know, for years the officers, the law enforcement officers there, were called game wardens, and of course they do much more than enforce just game laws. They're out on the water enforcing fisheries laws. They do a lot too in wildlife preservation. So it's not all enforcement activities. So, so anyway, so we uh, was able to, to get the, the name of those, of those conservation officers changed from game wardens to, to conservation officers, which is really a, a better term. And, and I, you know, I, I try to make that distinction too in terms of what I do, especially too when it relates to the political realm. So if you look at the things that you know, I worked on when I was a local government official, when I was in the general assembly, and then today, as a member of Congress and working on bills uh, like the Great American Outdoors Act, like the uh, uh, Land and Water Conservation Fund, like um, enhancing fishery science to make sure we are better at making fishery science decisions. All those are pieces of legislation that I put forward. And I remind people on my side of the aisle that as you look at your political ideology and folks on our side identify their ideology, ideology as conservative, which I am a conservative. And I tell them, if you are a conservative, then you are indeed a conservationist. You want to be able to conserve the natural resources that are given to us by our creator. So it is perfectly aligned to be a conservative and to be a conservationist, to conserve these resources and to pursue public policies that maintains and enhances the value of these resources you know we're all about the responsible use of resources whether it's tax dollars or whether it's the resources that our creator has given us so i tell folks this perfectly aligns with where conservatives should be ideologically so i think that's one of the things too that 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 uh, that i have tried when i was try to do when i was in congress or as i am in congress mm-hmm. is to engage others and get them to see what the whole realm of conservatism is, and that does include uh, being conservationist, and that is responsibly utilizing those great resources that our creator has endowed us with.
1: Absolutely. And I think we're starting to see more Republicans kind of lead on that issue, obviously with the passage of the Great American Outdoors Act. And I think some Mm -hmm. people conflate uh, kind of what the perceived view of conservation is, which is more preservationist type uh, Mm -hmm. things rather than stewardship, which I think conservatives better respond to, which falls in line with conservation, Mm -hmm. of course. And I think it's good that we're starting to, or we see more Republicans starting to be proactive and and on the offensive of this, just because I think Democrats on the other side of the aisle have largely defined Republicans in a negative way. And sometimes the Republican response to conservation or environmental issues has been kind of like a Democrat light response. So it's good to see members like yourself, trying to say, no, well, you can actually go about it from a conservation, conservative yeah. type of perspective, rather than just regurgitating and kind of like putting a Republican blanket on something, rather than actually saying, you could still do this, you could still be for limited government, you could still be, obviously, for uh, kind of the, the individual, but here's how you can do it, where it doesn't come at the expense of taxpayers and things of that sort.
0: Well, that's it, and I, and Gabriella, you hit the nail on the head, and that is, how do how do we empower the owners of these resources. And and when it comes to public lands, it's the citizens of the United States that own those lands. But remember, as you point out, we are stewards of what God has given us, and that is these resources. So the question is, is how do you empower individuals uh, to do even more in stewardship? And, and you're right, there is a distinction between preservation and conservation. Conservation means the responsible use in harmony with the uh, the treasures uh, that are part of those resources, to make sure that that we conserve them, and that I think is the key. And and how do we empower people along those lines? I mean, one of the one of the bills I was able to get passed was one that uh, allowed groups of citizens that volunteer to help maintain national wildlife refuge lands. They're called friends groups. How do we empower them and allow some of the government resources that go to maintain these public lands in the wildlife refuge system? How do we allow some of those dollars also to be leveraged by these citizens group that want to do the work? I mean, instead of having to hire folks, these citizens group groups want to do the work uh, with a little bit of resources like some gravel for them to help uh, you know, stabilize the road. I mean, it, they've done wonderful, wonderful work. And that's a perfect way that I think uh, conservatives, Republicans can go in and say, this is how we as communities, we as states, we as the nation can individually do our part to preserve uh, or to conserve what what uh, what our creator has, has, has given us.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I kind of see this happening with the Trump administration in terms of their approach to conservation. I've seen a lot of people, I have a lot of contacts, I was who have told me they feel a lot more Reassured by how they're administering uh, public lands management, giving a voice to conservation stakeholders who felt kind of voiceless in the past. Uh, what is uh, your reaction to all that? Because I bet you've seen similarly, uh, you've heard from different people who say they're private landowners or perhaps different constituencies, maybe watermen who've said that there's a little bit more of a balance when it comes to natural resources management. Um, more people have an input and I've just heard from many different people obviously there's opposition of course you're going to find that typical opposition but I think um, what people fail to underscore sometimes is that even if you dislike an administration you could still kind of look at kind of the good work that they're doing and I think people are recognizing that they're kind of bringing a balance to what was previously in place when it came to these type of issues and these type of concerns is that kind of something you see as well
0: uh, Gabriella, I do. I, I, see, I see the administration going to every possible length to involve as many people as possible in this effort. And I think if you only align your efforts with those that are within a very narrow stream of your thought, then you don't do everything possible to make sure that uh, we have uh, the maximum support and effort. To conserve these these natural resources, the more people that you involve, the better, the more citizens that see value in those natural resources, the better off we all are, regardless of your political ideology. And and I know sometimes people get caught up in in what particular groups are doing or what they're doing. Uh, the key is is how do, how do we make sure engage all of them and listen. There's going to be some disagreement across the lines about what the public policy should be, but I believe this that amongst all of those groups, all of those groups, there is a common line of agreement, and that is we must do everything possible to conserve the 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 this national treasure, and that is our our natural resources, mm-hmm. and and when we do. Everybody gets to enjoy that. So this is not unique to a one political ideology. And the things that we need to do don't fall within one category of ideas or solutions. They fall across a wide category. And why can't we do all of those? We should be able to do that without having to worry about, well, does this meet a particular prescription of what one group says should be done or what one group says Shouldn't be done. No, I think I think there's so much that can be done to conserve what we are uh, endowed by our Creator. That all of us should be able to say, okay, let let's get these let's get these things done, and let's, And then listen, we can have a debate about some of the other elements. But there's so much more that we have in common than we have in differences. So that I think is a great opportunity for for all of us as we pursue these efforts to to conserve our natural resources. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think there are certainly, I think everyone has the same amiable goals. Some may not because we see that, unfortunately, on the other side or, or the more preservationist side, I would say they don't want to agree to anything. If, if anything relating to hunting, there's so much opposition yeah. to any effort led by a hunting group. So unfortunately, you're going to find some people who are just reluctant. They're never going to partake. But there are some groups that are kind of in the middle that are more open, mm-hmm. I see a lot more groups <clears throat> kind of open-minded things, which is reassuring. And they're recognizing that Sometimes you don't need the government. You can, you know, incentivize individuals and landowners Mm -hmm. to take care of stuff. And perhaps that may be a better alternative than just always relying on the government. Although government does have some basic assurances and responsibility to safeguard things. But sometimes states and localities can be and individuals can be empowered where the government uh, may not have resources to dedicate or maybe they feel that they should better delegate those responsibilities to others.
0: No, I, I agree, Gabrielle, and if you look at the things that I think we can uh, we can do together, um, it should be emphasizing uh, those, those elements where we agree, and listen, there will, will be some that disagree, and I, listen, I'm a biologist by, by training, uh, or by education, and I do see that there is a value to harvesting animals, we'll call it hunting, and that's exactly what it is, but it truly is the harvest of those animals, and from a biological standpoint, we all know that our earth has a certain carrying capacity, it's called, and that is we have the natural resources to support certain populations of animals, including human beings, uh, and it is part of that to manage that. Human beings have always been part of that that process uh, of, the, of the food chain, and, and some folks have said, well, we're more civilized than that right now. We, we don't need to be part of the food chain. Uh, but we are. I mean, just, just by the very nature of who we are, we are part of that. And we are part of being able to intelligently manage these animal populations so the animal populations are healthy. They fall within the capacity of the environment to support them. Listen, there's nothing worse than to have animal populations that, that exceed the carrying capacity of the environment and, and, and destroy habitats and then become overpopulated and then die due to overpopulation and disease I mean, you know, we talk about humanity. That is much, much uh, more objectionable in my mind than it is to have a, a thoughtful, humane harvest of those animals and then make sure that those animals are used. I mean, we have lots of great organizations out there that go to extraordinary lengths to make sure that that those animals are used to feed the hungry and 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 to do good things. So, again, I, I think I think if you look at it just strictly from that standpoint. That there, there is a role for mankind in the realm of hunting and harvesting animals to maintain healthy populations and to manage those animal populations in the way that's best for the animals
1: mm-hmm. and
0: best for uh, best best for mankind.
1: Yeah, it all falls in line with the North American model of wildlife conservation, which is kind of the unofficial guidebook for how all of us should kind of be orienting ourselves as sportsmen. Probably in your respect uh, as a public policy person, uh, uh, legislating obviously, and uh, yeah, it, there are a lot of unspoken rules. And I want to ask your question. Uh, ask you, excuse me, um, about kind of what you personally think can be done to attract more people to hunting and even to fishing. Um, kind of taking away your public policy uh, hat. I know there are lots of remedies in, in that respect on the legislative front, but what do you think personally, and Vian, what are you doing, I would say, personally to kind of bring in a new generation of hunters, aside from your kids, which, who seem to be pretty well situated?
0: Yes. Well, b- besides, besides my children and my grandchildren, mm-hmm. uh, I, do, I do a lot uh, to help engage others. In fact, I've been really focused on getting our, our wounded warriors out in the field to go hunting, I, I think it's a great opportunity for them. Many of them have never been there. Many of them are struggling with the aftereffects of having served this country in combat. There's nothing more soothing them them uh, than for them to get out. And see Mother Nature. We I take them uh, waterfowl hunting, and we come down to the Northern Neck on the shores of the Rappahannock River. And that time of year, of course, all times of year, but that time of year especially is beautiful. There are tens of thousands of geese in the area, and there's nothing like watching these waterfowl fly around. And then the challenge of being able to to bring them in, and then harvest them, and then being able to to enjoy uh, these, these geese, in fact, what we'll do is, is take them back. We have a barn. they will take them back and, and actually clean the geese and then fix them right there. So they know, you know, how can you, how can you enjoy, uh, these, these animals and again, uh, or these birds. And, and again, we're, we're doing the responsible thing in managing these populations of geese. Uh, and then to giving an experience to these wounded warriors who, you know, from that point on become, True champions of the ability to go out and hunt, and then too, what goes along with that is remember, hunters too do more than probably any other group to preserve habitat. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at look at waterfowl hunters; they buy a duck stamp each year. Those duck stamp dollars go to to preserve habitat, to preserve wintering habitat, to preserve nesting habitat. Look at organizations like Ducks Unlimited and Delta Waterfowl; and think things that they do. So, you know these. These young men and women that have served our nation all of a sudden get an appreciation for the experience and then get an appreciation for what it takes to conserve those critical resources like wetlands. And and I remind people that wetlands not only are places for our waterfowl uh, to winter and nest, but they're also the nursery grounds for lots of other things that we treasure, The, 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 the fish, the oysters, the crabs. And everything that's part of the food chain. So it's it's you know it's 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 a multi multi valued prospect to put together these efforts so that people can enjoy the resources, but then understand the importance of this habitat to the things that we that all of us must be doing.
1: Very well said. Yeah, and I think um, people fail to notice that a, a critical component actually to. Uh, conservation funding is guns and ammo sales. And I've, I've tried to uh, communicate that to people. And I know some people may be watching and be like, oh gosh, they're talking about guns. It's typical of Republicans, but people forget that a large chunk of that money comes from those sales. And actually, I think we're going to see probably a big surge in conservation funding um, given all the purchasing that's going on right now because people yeah. are concerned about yeah. their safety or maybe they'd want to buy hunting rifles too. But I think largely due to personal safety reasons, we're going to kind of see a, a surge Hopefully, in mm-hmm. conservation funding.
0: Yes, I th- I think think we will. I, I mean, just initially, what we're seeing is that there there will be a, an increase in funding mm-hmm. from the resources that come from the dollars that are yielded by the sale of firearms mm-hmm. and of ammunition, and those dollars go directly to, to those conservation efforts, which is great. I mean, again, another example of sportsmen uh, funding. Uh, the preservation of these of these habitats and and many times that goes unnoticed I mean folks sometimes will will recognize the major organizations that work in the conservation realm but if you look at the total amount of resources that are dedicated to conserving our natural resources hunters are at the top of the list
1: absolutely all right so it's almost kicking me out but congressman whitman where can people connect with you
0: Sure, they can go to our website, which is whitman.house.gov. That's W-I-T-T-M-A-N.house.gov. And you go there. You can connect with us on Facebook. Please follow us on Facebook, uh, Facebook, on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, You can also call us at 202 225 4261 please stay in touch with us you can sign up for our daily e-newsletters we send a lot of information out especially on things we do in the conservation realm and it's a two-way street through that too you can communicate back to us so we'd love to have people communicate with us and follow us in the information that we put out
1: beautiful thank you so much congressman whitman for speaking with me and talking about the outdoors i will try to circle back and connect with you and maybe we can go out on the water and chat even more
0: We, we will we will make that happen.
1: What did you think of my conversation with Congressman Rob Whitman of Virginia's first congressional district? I want to hear your thoughts. Make sure you find us on your preferred platform and leave us some nice reviews if you feel inclined, especially an Apple Podcasts, That's the best way to kind of gauge opinion and your perception of the podcast. And let us know who you'd like for me to speak to. I am all ears about different politicians. I primarily interview Republicans because I kind of offer a safe space for them when most conservation outlets wouldn't necessarily give them the time and space to communicate freely. But heck, I would be even open to talking to Democrats if they were open-minded or more reasonable in their manner. But send your suggestions my way for conservationists I should talk to in the public sphere. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or a guest announcement. You can also, like I said, find us on anchor.fm, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and many other platforms. We will be posting more unique interviews. I think I'm going to be on a roll with interviews. There is so much actually news trending. I didn't really get to talk about the breaking news about the nomination withdrawal for William Perry Pendley of the Bureau of Land Management that just broke last week and I wanted to talk more about that maybe at some point in time we will. Once we start season three after Labor Day because that's when we're going to start a new season, I like to keep seasons approximate to the years. Uh, Once season three starts, we're going to resume monologues, but I figured I would entertain you guys with interviews. I like to do a combination of both interviews and monologues, but I like to keep everything short because... You can only process so much information over podcast form and I don't want to bore you guys with too much information or too much audio time there because time is precious even amidst a pandemic. Send me your suggestions, follow us on social media, find us on podcasting platforms, leave reviews, engage with us, engage with me on social media, and let me know what you would like to see on the podcast going into season three.